Welcome back to Conversations at the Leaky Cauldron, episode 3, chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14 in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, the fourth uh, volume in the seven-volume set. And here back with me are my esteemed colleagues, Miss Sarah Miller and Mr. Wes Lachance. Welcome back, Sarah. Welcome back, Wes. Happy Monday. Glad to have you here on Monday. And uh, welcome back, Sarah. And um, so today we were going to talk about uh, Aboard the Hogwarts Express, 11, 12, the Triwizard Tournament, 13, Mad-Eye Moody, 14, the uh, Unforgivable Curses. And uh, then also we were going to talk a little bit at the end as sort of a special treat um, about holiday, um, holiday hijinks we would like to get into in the magical world. What sorts of holiday activities spruced up by magic would we enjoy doing? And so we'll talk about that at the end. And so, uh, y'all, I, I have some ideas sketched out. You know, we meet Rita Skeeter here. We hear about what auras are. We meet this Mad-Eye Moody guy, and wow, he takes a practical approach. He's weird. How he deals with Draco make us think, might make us think some things about him that we really like. His eye is blue and can turn around in weird ways. We also meet SBEW and see Hermione starting to sort of bloom into her, her role of fighting for the oppressed um, and getting to what she does best, working in the library. And uh, Fred and George <laughs> sort of, you know, they keep, they're very different from usual, you know. They're very reserved and not the center of attention. And they're filling out, uh, filling out things in the corner. And what are they working on? And they, there's this Triwizard Tournament now. What is this thing? And so I, I think we have a lot of questions. Here, where would y'all like to start? What do you think, Wes? I, so I guess I found it kind of interesting that just like looking at numbers a little bit that the Tri-Wizard Tournament and the um, Unforgivable Curses both come in threes. Um, mm. I don't know if and that's... the number of champions? Well, yeah, right. So by extension, um, the way that this book uh, is sort of breaking new ground, right? It's beyond the trilogy, which is a little bit unusual um, for fantasies. But anyway, so like, yeah, there's something very fitting about the number three, of course, um, in terms of fairy tales and traditional stories and whatnot. Um, but it's, I, I found that particular parallel kind of interesting. I don't know if we could, I don't, probably we should start with something about the Triwizard Tournament, but I, I'm more interested, honestly, in the Unforgivable Curses, I think. I mean, those are the most interesting things, right? They just grasp your attention with horror and even a personal horrific connection in terms of Neville and what they can do to a human, right? Reducing them to, uh, you know, a blithering sort of mindless, um, uh, you know, creature like what happened to Neville's parents which is horrifying and we get to sort of again see this nuanced dark version of the world it's like again this tone we keep talking about which is this darkening tone and this deepening perspective on the world it's making me think more and more that the the uh the better or more sophisticated the fantasy the more it is going to be just like our world in terms of mm. uh, how people act um and yeah well I, I would start by saying that. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting how um, uh, how much Moody wants them to confront that. And like um, we've talked in our previous readings about the different kinds of dark arts teachers that they've had. And, um, you know, one of them was completely inept. Well, actually, a couple of them were completely inept, but in different ways. Um, you know, Lockhart was a liar. Quarrel was a coward. Um, I don't know what Lupin's flaw would be, aside from something kind of outside of his control, which was, you know, being a werewolf. But, but I, I did find myself at certain moments thinking that Lupin was a little bit too um, friendly for a, a teacher, and yet of the three he was clearly the superior um that they'd had and yet lupin just boom like through the first three teachers um he he basically calls them out and says 
um, you know, you, you haven't really spent a lot of time facing the things that are like really, really potentially going to damage your lives. Um, I'm looking for the passage, but, um, uh, he says, you're very, this is on, for my, in my book, it's on page 211. He says, you're behind, very behind on dealing with curses. So I'm here to bring you up to scratch on what, wither, what wizards can do to each other. I've got one year to teach you how to deal with dark, et cetera, et cetera. And then he admits he's only planning to stay for one year and then go back to retirement. But I thought that phrase was interesting where he says, I'm here to teach you what, what wizards can do to each other. As though, like darkness, the dark arts really are a choice that wizards make, as opposed to like dark, sort of dangerous, villainous creatures that they've learned to deal with or learned about and wrote papers about. Um, I think that that's interesting. And to your point, Wes, about three, I think the the fourth dimension of like things all of a sudden needing to be in time and in motion is really visible as like the number three and the number four kind of become um, important, at least in the next, in the next few chapters when three becomes four. You know, and it's interesting and just a connection to Dante, I don't know if this is consciously done or not, but you know, in the beginning of his uh, divine comedy, which is split into three in so many ways, you know, there's a, there are triple line set stanzas, there are 33 uh, cantos per canticle. There are three, mm-hmm. three canticles. But in the first one, the Inferno, there are 34, which has There's that 34. three yeah. and four. And um, so you see him sort of breaking with tradition in order to accord with perfect form, though. And I think that's sort of interesting, too, because, because this is four on the way to seven. Um, mm-hmm. in the same way that his 34 is on the way to 100. And so there seems to be sort of an interplay between a move that might seem like a false step if taken as like a final step, uh, wh- when in reality it's a part of the journey. And so you can't quite see it for what it is yet. And I wonder if that's sort of part of the interplay between the three and the four. And uh, the unions make a big deal about three and four and quaternions as images of perfection and completion and triple images like the Trinity as images of pursuit of perfection, still active. So like they, they claim that's why the Catholics assumed Mary into heaven in the 20th century because the, the Trinity needed that fourth, that feminine element. And I don't know, very interesting way to look at, you know, art. Yeah, I I think that the way that the Triwizard Tournament is um, discontinued was kind of interesting, too. Right. Like in, in some way, it points forward to the unforgivable curses in that way, too. It's like there's this, this dark side to the tournament, which led to it being discontinued at a certain point. Um, and they're only now finally uh, reviving it. Uh, it. So it's like, you kind of have the question about like perfection, like from, from what standpoint um, is it perfect? Is it the thing that you can, you can stop doing because you've finished it? Or is it the thing that you can stop doing because you don't think you can do it any better and doing any more is just going to make it worse. Right. Like with, right. with the trial tournament. Um, and it seems like also that sort of goes to the idea of, um, of the big, the large uh, uh, international, sort of scope of this book and, and the humongous size of this book just overall, right? <laughs> that we're, we've just seen the uh, Quidditch World Cup and now we're going to see the, the Triwizard Tournament, This the way that the, the series is kind of like breaking the boundaries of England, right? The, the kind of insularity of the previous books uh, is, is, cra- is, you can see through it a little bit in book mm-hmm. three, Hogsmeade for the first time, but much more so here where you, you're, you're hearing about wizards from other countries and other continents and, and whatnot. Yeah, I think um, I'm, I'm really interested now in all of this number stuff. I, I guess I had sort of thought about it, but, um, but not, not in such depth. I, I guess, uh, I mean, 
in this reading, do we meet the people from the other schools or is that a no? Um, not yet. I, I guess no, not yet. Okay. Um, yeah, I think, um, I think it might be cool to unpack some of what, um, what we notice in the, the language of the unforgivable, excuse me, the unforgivable curses. Um, the one that always stood out to me as I was teaching this book for like an independent tutorial is my students were really interested in all of like the Latin roots, which I'm sure the two of you are, are um, well versed in and then it's not something that is worth your awe or your wonder because you read it and you're like, well, of course she picked that word. Um, but I think uh, the curses always can be like a really cool moment of recovery where you um, you realize that like, oh, wow, like that's how she made this this new thing, this, this piece of quote unquote magic was the use of some type of, of you know, Latin construction, like the imperative for um like the word for imperative for the, the curse where you um uh you force somebody to do something but i always thought it was interesting that like when i did research on the killing curse um it came up not as uh having roots in greek or latin but as having roots in aramaic which to me is is super interesting um given what you just said alex about the trinity um and and the many references that you and we have continued to make to um the inferno uh so, yeah and I'm, I'm i'm just looking it up right now but i'm almost positive it was something about uh i'm sorry i just i just lost it anyway but I, I, I do seem to remember that. I don't know if any of any of you looked it up. I'd be curious if you did what you found. Not yet, but that is very interesting, especially because we learned that you have to have a lot of power behind it. And all the students at this point could not uh, yeah. even make his nose bleed. And that's interesting because in the movies, you sort of get the sense that you just have to say the words, but apparently there you need a little more. But something about the, the, the curses and the connection to them and the Triwizard tournament are the predictions that Harry makes. And I think this will segue into the curse as well, because I know we want to think about them probably specifically and the fact that they're taught and what that means and whether that's sort of a, a mirror shield of Perseus to look at Medusa so that they aren't traumatized in reality and whether they have to procedurally sort of experience that. Um, but um, I'm sorry, just, I just found out. I just can interrupt. Uh, I, I just saw it. Um, According to J.K. Rowling at an Edinburgh Book Festival in 2004, she said, quote, does anyone know where Avada Kedavra um, came from? It is an ancient spell in Aramaic, the original of Abracadabra, which means let the thing be destroyed. Um, originally, it was used to cure illness, and the thing was the illness, but I, she decided and then in quotes, it's, I decided to make it the thing as in the person standing in front of me. I take a lot of liberties with that. I twist them around and make them mine, end quote. But I just, I just think the let the thing be destroyed is so interesting. And that it comes from the language that Jesus would have spoke is, is, is fascinating to me as well. Yeah, and it is a use anyway. of language itself to destroy mm -hmm. and so yes. it yes. is like embodied articulated hate which destroys the community like it is a pure betrayal and that's so that's really okay so i i, I want yes i i want to consider that specifically but i also just want to put this on the table too before it drops out of my head um um that um the predictions that harry makes that he thinks he's just joking about that he's completely correct oh, about. Yeah. When he says on Monday, he might get burnt. The dragons, the first challenge. Tuesday, lose something precious. That's literally what is taken from all of the champions. Somebody close to them. And then third, comes out worse than a scrap. And this is how I connect this to the unforgivable curses. There will be a connection between coming out worse than a scrap at the end of this and the use of an unforgivable curse. And I wonder if, again, we're reading this in a darkly metaphorical way, 
that means that what one of these boys was willing to do in order to win. And, and that is how Voldemort becomes re-embodied. And I just want to put that as like a hypothesis that can, you know, we can discount or, or, or embody it if it's real, if it's good. But uh, I'm very interested in that. But um, in what way does Harry in that third prophecy come out the worst? And maybe we can only answer that question later on. Because at least in one way, and I think this goes back to Wes's point about Harry's behavior when he won the, Quidditch, the Quidditch Cup, but did not help uh, help his friend defend Buckbeak. How Gryffindor was he really being? And so in, in this text, we see. Um, sorry, sorry, I was just dropping out of my head the parallel exactly that. Um, Can one of y'all finish that for me? I'm sorry. No. So what you're suggesting that um, something about the, about Harry failing to live up to like the truest or richest or purest form of the virtue. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So of just, his house as, is, just as he went, just as he might win the tournament, he might lose something mm. far more important. Yes. Thank you, Sarah. Yes, just like in Some, the third something one, about, in a smaller way. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the unforgivable curses then. So does that mean that, that the unforgivable, I mean, I'm just going to try and connect this by thinking out loud. Wes, you were saying that like the three unforgivable, ugh, why can't I say that word? It's because I'm tired. Those three bad curses um, that get you, you know, one-way tickets to Azkaban or whatever it is that Moody says, um, is it that um, there's like a fourth element that's required, like something, some kind of like, uh, some kind of extra thing to put all three of those in real motion? Um, it's it's like some kind of darkness or failure or imperfection within the um, or hatred, I guess, maybe even within the within the mind and heart of the speaker, because he does say, like you said, Alex, he does say, you could all use these words all at once at me, and it wouldn't do anything. So it it kind of seems like the three curses are insufficient on their own, and that like, or the language itself is insufficient on its own. There's like a fourth thing necessary to you know, push the, push the ball off of the mountain. Like they have this potential energy, but that's, need a push. That's interesting to what extent uh, a conscious will is necessary behind uh, a curse like that. And so what might be required is consciously choosing to take away the will of another, because there's a, and there seems to be an element of taking the willpower from some, from one at various levels in these curses. On the one hand, you take away their ability, their motor control, and you, you act for them, like the old Yerks in Animorph series. Uh, in the, uh, the other, you actually contort their body in pain and make them, um, again, motorically move in a way you want them to. And then in the third, Avada Kedavra, you take their life from them and their ability ever to choose again. And so it's interesting to what extent that is like pure malevolence mm. or ill will put in there to take away the will of another conscious being it's got it's like the the most wrong or the most anti-social act for a group creature well, yeah i hadn't thought of it quite that way but I, it's making a lot of sense as you guys are talking about it and i'm thinking about the way that um the the characters respond to each of the curses as moody um performs them so the first one makes everyone laugh because the spiders are doing acrobatics uh, and he challenges them to think about a little more like what that really means. Then the second one, the Cruciatus, um, is the one that Hermione screams out that he, sh he has to stop. Um, so again, we see her standing up for the, um, the downtrodden there um, and like standing alone, really, right? Everyone else is kind of just in shock and she's the one who speaks up. Um, 
and and she does it because she notices what's going on with Neville, right? Um, so that's that's another aspect of this that we we don't know the whole story there yet, but we'll find out. And then with the third one, uh, this was the line in the reading that struck me the most, I think, where it says, um, Moody raised his wand and Harry felt a sudden thrill of foreboding. Yes. Um, that really, I was really curious yeah what to make of that combination of of emotions there um and the way that the spell is actually described is really interesting too so there's a flash of blinding green light and a rushing sound as though a vast invisible something was soaring through the air instantaneously the spider rolled over onto its back unmarked but unmistakably dead and so there's all those negatives there right invisible um and mm -hmm. Marked and unmistakable, and that refers, I think, to the unforgivableness too. I, I think the unforgivableness might be the fourth thing, but I'm not quite sure how to how to connect that? that with the idea of like taking away will or or whatever. It's a negating aspect. That's that's what this thing embodies—a pure negation of uh, preventing, preventing. That's interesting. Uh, win language, right there, right? That you are yeah. keeping one from ever expressing oneself again that's it that that's interesting to what extent that's that is what evil is is using your will to negate the will of another and thus not producing anything right instead of working together and producing you know great wealth or something great uh you you just weaken everybody by that um well, and also i mean we'll see of course the consequences of the cruciatus curse and um what that does to a human later but i think also you know i always sort of thought about the unforgivable curses as things that were unforgivable like in your society like you will never be welcomed back into the fold um if you do this um, but I, I think that the way that each of them functions, I, this is just now sort of something that was coming to me when you, when you were talking, when both of you were talking just now, it's like, it also forever makes impossible um, the potential for person to person, um, rec like reconciliation in the, in like the most literal sense, not in like the uh forgiveness religious sense but like restoration of relationship between the victim and the victimizer is impossible if you can't trust that the victim is fully giving that restoration because they their will has been impugned by some um imperative curse if their mind is no longer attached to the to reality because of torture or if they're legitimately no longer alive right like not only not only could the person who uses these curses be shunned by their community but the 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 person who suffers immediately as a consequence that relationship is forever severed in some way um and i it, interestingly enough i think maybe because that is severed that person has severed their relationship to the community as well i don't know um, it seems, I think, was the point that you brought up about Hermione being the one to, not because the spider is suffering, but because this friend slash classmate of hers is suffering. Like, her attention is not necessarily where everybody else's is, but it's where it ought to be. And I think, like, she is emerging, like we said, as, like, this person who has a sense, maybe a little extreme at the moment when she decides she's going on a, a starvation diet but um like she has this sense of right right and wrong like a, a like a real um like moral compass and occasionally it can be really annoying to her friends but we've said it for a while now that her her attention seems to be in the right place before a lot of other people's attention is is in the right place and her attention is on a relationship, like, um, not, I, I don't know if that makes any sense, but she seems yeah. to be attentive to her own community 
Um, I, 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 I think. She, and she is very good at caring for others and noticing the needs and wants of others, as we noted in her, her choice of gift for Harry. And she will actually be a major emotional support to him here. While I think J.K. Rowling also makes some fun uh, of the good-hearted, but uh, sometimes uh, not sort of efficiently-minded aspects of that mentality when the first thing that Hermione wants to do to help people is to have a membership drive and to to have them buy membership <laughs> memorabilia. And I think that is a, a funny comment. It's like, okay, well, the first thing we're going to do is not help them. We're going to, you know, get members. And it's like, you know, that's not very grassroots. But um, but I, I, I wanted to just mention that uh, just continuing to agree with you guys, that what is also impossible after seeing these curses is to believe that the world itself is just good and not evil. And particularly this right. Hogwarts world for these students, they cannot go back to a naive worldview where magic just makes everybody good and nice and sweet. Actually, it can be used in just as awful a way as your imagination can be construed because that's exactly how it would be, right? Add intelligent, malevolent human plus magic bang, here's what you get. And then also what we as sort of adolescent readers would have been getting is that even in this fantasy world that we might be trying to escape to because the world in which we live is so difficult, um, even in here there's evil and terrible malevolent evil and you need to be skillful in your, your learning to deal with it as well. And I think that's just, a, I think that's a very ethical and correct move on the part of J.K. Rowling. So what else? Um, I'm sorry. I... Oh no, I, I just said, what else would you guys want to talk about? I, I can't hear anybody. Sorry, yeah. Um, I really like the oh, point about. Were you on mute? Uh, were you on mute, Wes? Sorry. I think I think so. Um, yeah. The the point you made about the Avada Kedavra is really really interesting because because abracadabra is kind of the uh, the quintessential magic words, right? And so mm -hmm. going back to like what that actually means, that's that's really interesting too because um, uh, yeah, when we think about magic we, I guess, tend to think about it in terms of um, something sort of lighthearted or, um, you know, just good, right? And, and the imagination is probably that way too, or creativity, right? Like all these kinds of concepts are, are sort of morally valenced on the good side of things generally um, and unreflectingly perhaps, but, but they're just as, right, uh, full of, of negative potential. and and Moody's um, lesson here seems to be uh, constant vigilance, right? Like he shouts this numerous times that there's no counter curse. And you, the way that you defended yourself against these is through constant vigilance. And they call him Mad-Eye Moody, uh, Moody be, because he's, uh, he's a little bit off, right? Like he is so constantly vigilant that he doesn't really function um, anymore and, and you know outside of like catastrophic situations he's not somebody that you want to be around really um and so and he also points out you know like it wasn't harry potter's constant vigilance that saved his life right there there is something else here that that people don't understand and that you know maybe isn't something that's um moody's place to to teach us but anyway you know there, there is something that breaks out of the, uh, the lesson here, and that's Harry Potter. And, and so we get one more time, and not for the last time, the story of his parents' deaths, like how he's been uh, mm -hmm. dealing with that, and how, how that's sort of like in the background of everything, um, how it's you know, inexplicable um, that he should sur have survived this. Um, I, I think that's something that should sort of be cueing us to, you know, that this isn't, this is still not the whole story, right? As much as 
Moody is is couching this as like you know facing this thing and uh, no you know knowing what you're up against and this and that like it's still only it's an important part of the story but it's still only a part of the story I, I guess um, he's hmm. he's got the he's got that that aspect of him with the um, the the possessed dustbins that are such a big thing about when he's first introduced you know and. Arthur Weasley has to go and like, you know, um, mop up his his mess with the, the policemen, uh, the Muggle policemen. So there's something about Mad Eye Moody that you know is very impressive. Uh, there's this whole like the darkness and all that, but there's also something a little bit, you know, just just incomplete about him, just uh, just a little off. And obviously, we'll we'll learn a lot more about that as we go along here. Well, I think that's so interesting that you say that uh, what he presages is not knowing what the next step in the story and sort of a, a predict, like what you should know is that there are layers of the story yet to have been revealed to you and you are in sort of a proximate zone of having them revealed to you over time and uh, in the near future. Because, because that's been so much of what this book is, right? Like all of a sudden the wizarding world is an international world and here's this huge event and well, actually, here's this huge new event from 100 years ago, and there's just so much more to it when we could be getting comfortable with the world. In fact, the right way to go is to expand the world and to show us just how little we really do know, to sort of re-disorient us so that we continue to sort of uh, get that thrill of exploring this now larger zone of, uh, of fictional narrative. And I wonder to what extent that's sort of the progress of consciousness in the Piagetian way that, like, if you start to get bored where you are, you need to explore more, not less. Like you're not seeing as, in a, as sophisticated a way as you can. You're seeing too simplistically because there is always more to be seen as we're seeing in this wizarding world. You have to go deeper down the rabbit hole, I guess, is what I, I think uh, the force or the direction of this narrative is pushing us towards. Right, we're and you know we're even seeing kids get like traumatized in school here. We're going to be dealing with some serious themes uh, again. And I feel like three three was serious, but two had a really deadly seriousness with the idea of a dead student. And I, I think we get back to that sort of deadly seriousness, but in a very different way in this text. Yeah, I mean, there's also the kinds of humor that we do get like to lighten the mood and stuff like i don't know one of the other most striking lines in this part maybe maybe i'm getting it from a different chapter sorry but if i am but does does ron make that uranus joke yes um, in this? Oh <laughs> come on ron like wow okay so so there's that like there is still little flashes of humor oh so, high school boy oh my god <laughs> Well, yeah, and we well, get we get uh, Harry. We also get Harry dreaming of Cho, you know, and his his crush, and mm -hmm. he's still glad that Ron can't see into his mind, which you know also foreshadowing, right? But yeah, go ahead. And Peeves, Peeves has a big role here, and we learn a couple things because of Peeves. Like for one, Peeves like really does rain on their parade, literally. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, then then you hear then we learn a, an interesting nugget of wisdom about the house elves. Uh, from Peeves's doings, and that sort of illustrated to me why the trickster fig figure in um, mythology presages the the wise figure or the hero, because the trickster uses his or her mind to go outside the rules, and then gets usually punished by the rules, and thus understand and thus understands the reasons behind the rules, and becomes wise because of being sort of a trickster or criminal, and we become wise because of Peeves is going outside the scope of normal boundaries. Uh, and thus the stories appended to him expand our wisdom and map of things. And I thought that was really, and I know we're talking about funny things, um, but I, as just a funny character, it is interesting to what extent he's, he's also a big source of information. He's also um, an example of like the, hierarchies that maybe go unexamined um like isn't he not invited to something and so he yeah, makes a mess in the kitchen yeah um 
And so not unlike the house elves who are revealed, of course, at first when we meet Dobby, but um, I think it's, uh, it's Hagrid who later in the chapters, uh, or in the, in the next reading assignment, he's going to say, well, there's an odd one in every bunch, um, re referring to Dobby. Um, not knowing, of course, that Hagrid is the odd one in his own bunch, but that's beside the point. Um, the point is, I think um, uh, there are, like you said, there are increasing um, elements of the world that we're being exposed to, and they're not necessarily the beautiful elements, but they are elements that we, that are recognizable, right? So like, uh, and like the unforgivable curses, um, and the things of darkness that we come to discover in our own world, you can't really ever unknow them or go back to a, a, a time when that was not known. That's just not how that works. I've, I've been teaching Catcher in the Rye. And uh, have you guys read that book, by the way? Yes, long ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, high school classic. I, so I, I hated it in high school. Um, I thought he was a shrimp, like a, a whiny, annoying prat. Um, and then I had to teach it at, at Crystal Ray. And not only was he whiny and annoying, but he was like pretty white and rich and entitled. And <laughs> that was annoying as well. And uh, um, then I taught it again at Gonzaga and I just did a poor job of it. Um, I didn't, I didn't really give it the, the air, um, the airtime, the space to breathe. But this is the fourth time I've read it and the third time I've taught it. And it is like hitting me in the gut. Um, there's this passage where he is, sorry, I know this is a bit, this is a bit of a deviation, but I figured it's okay. Um, Holden is talking about the museum of um, natural history in New York City and how much he likes the museum because he used to go there with his sister and nothing ever changes in the museum. Um, everything is preserved under these glass cases and nothing, nothing moves, nothing changes. And he's ex extremely concerned with preserving things that are good and beautiful and innocent. And he says that the only thing that changes about the museum when you go back is you. Like you may go back another time and you're wearing an overcoat or you may go back and your classmate ha is sick. So you have a different like buddy, or you might have just the night before heard your mom and dad yelling at each other, or you might have seen uh, like a, uh, he calls it like a gasoline slick in a, in a puddle, like ugliness in, in something that should be pure. Right. So that like, all that is by a long way of saying that, um, I think we're being exposed to just as they are at, at the right time, like at 14 and 15 is like developmentally when this happens, when you start to see like things that you can't unlearn. Um, you can't go back to a time where you hadn't seen the killing curse. You can't go back to a time when you hadn't seen, or when, when you didn't have a crush, you know what I mean? Like that, because you're forever changed by these things. These things that are inherently um, things that we suffer, you know? Um, there's and, a reason, I guess, that it's called a crush. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, it hurts. <laughs> I, think, I think this is subtly done, too, in um, undercurrents in, the, in the, um, the story as well, with, say, like showing that through the figure of Rita Skeeter that you can't always trust mm -hmm. The, what you read in the journal or you have to be able to think for yourself and adjust for the slant and then also a disagreement between Dumbledore and the ministry through using Moody who is being criticized by Rita and thus you know who do you trust Rita the journalist who stands for the people or the judgment of Dumbledore or the judgment of the ministry that's going to require that you you have your own ability to think for yourself because you don't necessarily know who to trust and again i think that's part of sort of the pattern effect of developing your consciousness at this age that once you're out of eden which i think is the in a, a suitable metaphor for this or out mm -hmm. of just the picture white heavenly conception of the disney castle 
and now see it for more of you know what it truly is in its fuller aspect that you're seeing this everywhere now everything is starting to fill out a little more mm -hmm. so you're really mm -hmm. going to your perception is adjusting and so you're going to have to you know really adjust your behavior in this world very quickly you know I wonder to what extent then the Triwizard Tournament is like an initiation ritual into adulthood then. Mm. And yeah, that's, yeah. Well, that, that's explicitly what Fred and George are so upset about, right? Is that they're, they're setting a, an arbitrary age limit rather than having it open to those with like skill and drive and, and all that good stuff, right? Um, and so, there's sort of different ways to try to to measure or to to draw that boundary, um, and they've they've set an age limit. Um, obviously, Harry Potter is going to get around that somehow. But um, but the Weasleys, right? They they would really like to compete, but they're just going to be kept out on the technicality. Um, and we see them, yeah, act, as you mentioned, like acting way more mature than we have in the past. Mm -hmm. They clearly would. And they clearly would benefit, right, from having that that shot at those um, thousand galleons. Man, how much more interesting I think, would it have been to see them compete <laughs> than said. Sorry, go on, Sarah. Uh, no, I mean you're right. They got it. I I sometimes wonder, like, wouldn't it be cool to read a book of their adventures? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. Like as you know. Like that that should be the next Fantastic Beast uh like Harry Potter installment. I'd like to see more Fred and George. Anyway, what I was gonna say is I think the Triwizard Tournament is in some ways a bit of a red herring for maturation. Like it it's supposed to be this big, like grand event that separates the wheat from the chaff, you know, and like it's gonna it's gonna really test you. It's like but it's still these like ministry designed um uh uh tasks these trials that they're they've they've removed the real danger to their lives so even like no matter how um no matter how like close they get to the line of of mortal danger um it's still like a game and um I just like at the end of that chapter, I think it's chapter um, 12, when um, Ron is like dozing off to sleep saying, you know, I think I'm going to go for it, which is so funny because like he doesn't do anything. He doesn't do anything to try and get himself ready <laughs> to, to put his name in the goblet, but he gets mad that anyway, he's just going to ride his siblings coattails again. Um, I'm on an anti-Ron kick. Um, on page 182, though, Harry starts to dream about um, having hoodwinked the impartial judge. He became the Hogwarts champion. He was standing on the grounds, his arms raised in triumph in front of the whole school, all of whom were applauding and screaming. He had just won the Triwizard Tournament. Cho's face stood out particularly clearly in the blurred crowd her face glowing with admiration. And if you change like a couple words there, it's pretty prescient, right? Um, like he was standing on the ground, his arms raised in agony in front of the whole school, all of whom were applauding and screaming. He had just won the tournament. Cho's face stood out, um, her, face glow, uh, her face like glistening with tears or something, I don't know. Um, and I think because I think the real test of adulthood is um, uh, your reaction to the unforgivable unfor curses that we'll see later, right? Is your reaction to like the death of another um, and the, you know, like that will be the, the rite of passage, but it's not exactly a rite that you want any, everybody to go through, right? Like, um, I don't want any of, I don't want any of your students or mine to, to go through what he has to endure, but like an Olympics event sounds kind of cool, you know, 
I don't, I don't know if that makes any sense. Like, yeah, I'm not sure if I'm, if it's a fully formed thought just yet, but that like, it's, it's, it's still a simulation of the things that make you grow up. Um, but yeah. I don't, I don't know. Would we want, would we want our students to go through like the non the non simulation stuff? I wouldn't. I mean, I guess our, I guess that that's a, at the end of the day, like that's a good question for us to ask as teachers is like, have we simulated well enough that when they, when they arrive at the non simulation, are they ready to face it without, without, uh, I don't know, without having to like take away the protections of the scaffolding too soon. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Well, I think at the very least, yeah, go on Wes. So the, the thing that comes to my mind about that is that, you know, the simulation is always only sort of an illusion. It's on top of, you know, the real possibility that anything could happen at any time. Right. So, right. you know, like, mm -hmm. particularly nowadays, students are much more sort of vulnerable to or aware of their vulnerability yeah. to things like depression, yeah. anxiety, and those consequences that fall from that. So, so whatever kind of like like absurd um, competition that could lead to death. Well, that's really just sort of a metaphor for what's already happening anyway. You know, it's it's more colorful mm. and flashy, but yeah. I, so it's a really interesting thought and worth. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with Wes that it also seems to illustrate the opposite as well. That even though it is an illusion and it illustrates its own illusory nature, that what underlies it is something deadly serious like the capacity for violent mm. or death and that that's that's part of like the simulation of an education too it's like yeah you're in the school right now you know what you're also subject to all the natural forces and all the terrible things in the world uh even though you are going along sort of a simulated track at this point um so i i think that really is a very interesting point too that we can that and that would be something very important for students to have, right? Because they become sort of disaffected because they seem to recognize the simulated nature of their experience within an education. Mm -hmm. Listen, no students, it's actually very good for you that you're within this estuarial mental structure that we're putting you along mm -hmm. because actually reality is horrifying. Um, <laughs> it, you know, it's elaborate, right, like complex and will eat you. <laughs> How many times do you, do the students say like, I'm never going to need this in real life or, like, what if, if I was in the real world, would being able to diagram this sentence or calculate the derivative of this equation, is this necessary, you know? And like, you want to say like, on the one hand, no, but on the other hand, absolutely. Like, yes, this, everything matters. And I think, in, I mean, you're right that like, the, like that the, that the game of the tournament or even like the game of Quidditch or the game of school, it's all, um, there's like a, there's like a, there's a, a goodness to that, to it being a simulation and all of that. I don't, I don't know that I'm even using that word the way I, I, I mean, I'm not sure that that's the best word for what I'm talking about, but um, I just, I think, and, and you're absolutely right too, that like the things that, our students today are wrestling with are extraordinarily grave for some of them. Um, and so the fact that this particular tournament presents like real serious gravity, like beyond say, like what, what are they called? Like the scroots or whatever it is that they're trying to raise in Hagrid's <laughs> class, you know, like they like might eat them one day, but like doesn't present that much of a, of a challenge slash something interesting, but like is just gross. And like, or the the tubers that what's their name, Professor Sprout makes them like, <laughs> like harvest the pus from. Like, talk about like the ugly side of of learning. Um, but uh, that's right, and the necessary. You know, I, no, yeah, ugly and necessary, right? Um, like sometimes you got to do the things that aren't flashy and cool. But yeah, I I I try to get them to see that like, like leaving school, you they all want to do it so badly. Because they think it's where you're going to be free, but they don't necessarily know what they want to be free for. They just know what they want to be free from. And I think, and I'm, I'm speaking very generally about like 
the high school adolescent in general. But um, I, yeah, I think knowing what's coming and knowing what the, the tournament tests these young people into doing or becoming, I think it's interesting that like the figure who is younger than the others is going to be the one who um, maybe brings some of the really good things about school, like teamwork, um, uh, the collaborative victory, um, bring some of those to a, a tournament that I guess is designed to separate people. And a book that like, I think is a, a pretty obvious argument of the entire series is the, is the virtue of teams and like community and uh, societies and groups, you know, collaboration. Um, I think it's interesting that the younger, the seemingly immature, the one who shouldn't be in the tournament is the one who, um, you know, who brings some of these things that like, and ultimately save a lot of, like protect people from suffering, right? Yeah, and I mean, ultimately what, what, you know, two of the major themes in this text seem to be, or at least with two of the major parts being the Triwizard Tournament as well as the, which brings international communities together just as the Quidditch World Cup did, is that when humans come together to cooperate and compete in fantasy or real world, they, uh, they, are, they are bounding things together for mutual benefit. They are bonding together for um, mutual, mutual benefit. It seems, uh, it seems that what the, the big problem is is when you try and stand outside of bounding uh, structures like games or, or like preset sort of rules and institutions. It's as if obviously those exist with flaws and limitations, but in, in sort of like the, the widest possible view, those also make the best possible human interactions uh, possible. And they also produce the conditions for the, the outputting of the best possible human qualities, right? Like when a human is competing yeah. for the highest possible aims, then he or she will be pursuing excellence at as high a level as possible. And that's like what we see in the Olympics and what we see in the Triwizard Tournament, that, that we should see the game structure of many of our institutions not as something to deride, but as something that has actually been calculated to produce the best from us. Um, and that we can, can you, for the better too, if we want to, that's fine. Games are always evolving. Do you think this has anything to say about the way that Mad-Eye, um, like punishes people? Hmm. Like exercises discipline. Um, just cause like he clearly steps over the line. Um, but it's hilarious. Well, you right? know what's, it, what's like, interesting? Yeah. What? So I definitely did think about I, I don't know. Like, I, I, I'm glad that Malfoy got turned into a ferret. I think that's hilarious. Um, and it's like a, the, a, a yucky animal. So. And again, that's um, so humiliating. It's perfect he'll never, with him. He'll never be able to not have been <laughs> turned into a ferret by a teacher. Um, <laughs> Which I think is great. No of the uh, none of the other kids can ever say that. I mean, when Ron says, "Don't you know? I want to sit and memorize this moment forever. Don't ruin it, Hermione." I mean, it's just so sweet. <laughs> and then my father, and then Mad Eye Moody punishes him further after he says that. It's even better. Like that doesn't scare Moody at all. He's gonna walk him right down to Snape, and even Snape's gonna kind of act like a punk. It's like all of Malfoy's. Like foe thinking that he's the one protected, that's out the window this year. And so he's having to learn too, which I think is interesting just to connect to your boy Neville, uh, Harry, who or Wes, <laughs> Wes Harry, who has a who has a kind of a tough start, but also an interesting start with his interactions with uh, Moody and um, and uh, then then getting that book and being called good by something, and then Harry also noticing that that was a very tactful way for Moody to, to uh, 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 raise the spirits of Neville, and that's what Lupin would have done. Oh, yes, and Hedwig comes back. Right, right. She, um, 
she bears this message that has been long awaited, right, from Sirius. And it's it's just what Harry was afraid of, right? That Sirius is overreacting, you know, like he's he's coming back, he's gonna put himself in danger. And so that that aspect of it too, um, all of these different sort of role models that we're presented with um, and sort of uh, people that Harry potentially can look up to, like you mentioned Lupin is a big one. Um, Moody in a way is another, right? He's, he's a kind of um, parental figure here, um, standing up for uh, Neville especially. Also, and, does uh, not care about rules, just like Harry. <laughs> well, well, he cares about certain rules, right? Yes. Um, yes. They, they're just not the school rules necessarily. <laughs> right. No. Right. And I think that's good. Yeah. And well, so. Oh no! Go ahead. Sorry. No, the last. I was just gonna try to say something. I'm not sure what exactly about how serious uh, is 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 also there. You know, he's like he's waiting in the wings, and this was okay. This was a point I wanted to make real quick. Was just how how we're prepared for certain characters' entrances. Like Sirius Black is there from, you know, like the second page of the first book. And then he's finally brought on stage in book three. But if I'm remembering right, I haven't heard of Mad-Eye Moody before. Like, and then suddenly he's mentioned like 10 times in three pages. And then he's like very unmistakably a major character in this book, but, but maybe one that she sort of just came up with a little late in the game. I don't know. That's interesting because how we get excited for him is that Fred and George are excited about him. And so it's like when they're excited about something, especially when they've been reserved, you know, it's something that's like bad to some extent, right? Something that goes outside <laughs> the scope of behavior, something that's going to potentially get you in trouble. And so this is like a big risk that Dumbledore seems to be taking with putting Mad-Eye Moody in there. So Dumbledore seems to be, recognizing the situation in the world that darkness is rising and these students are going to have to face it and that's why he's bringing moody in right now as a special favor to teach them specifically about curses but i don't know whether that theory gets a hole poked in it later when we find out the truth about moody um but maybe well i don't yeah. know i don't know that like just because what we find out about moody later well just because we do find that out doesn't mean that what that that doesn't mean that Dumbledore wasn't thinking what you're suggesting that he's thinking. Like when, when uh, Moody says, you know, I'll be here for a, a year. He says something, there is something in here about, yeah, he understands that like, it's like stuff getting serious out there. Um, I've got one year to teach you, you know, how to, uh, how to deal with dark. There's, there's some, um so on page 211 and 212 it says um it says uh dumbledore's got a higher opinion of your nerves he reckons you can cope and i say the sooner you know what you're up against the better you know like he like as though dumbledore knows that it it's time and it may not be like you're totally ready but it's good to throw you into the deep end and see if you can swim I guess. Yeah, which makes me wonder um, to what extent Dumbledore even knows that who this really is, um, and to what extent this really is the real possibly. thing, and the students being, yeah, uh, exposed to it. Okay, so y'all, we're we're, get, we're getting to that time. We got to decide on our our oh, yeah. holiday plans, and so um, did one of y'all want to start? I can always start because I I always think I've tried kind of a couple options beforehand but um did either of you think of a holiday sort of wintry wizarding activity that you would want to take place in around this late december time i guess it's sort of still early but it will be late soon i i thought maybe uh uh sledding with elves would be fun um i don't know that like they got all those pots and pans down in the kitchens and they seem to have really endless supplies of magical ability. Um, so, you know, throwing them a bunch of hats and gloves so that they're all free and then going sledding with them and just like uh, flying over the, the frozen lake, you know, and seeing the, 
the lake monster down the giant squid like swimming around under the ice and i i just think that would be really really fun um they could build some really sweet snow man or snow elves or something and uh have some good snowball fights and all that good stuff that's what i was thinking would you also throw to them health insurance forms because they must have health insurance and pensions <laughs> uh and, and uh, it's funny because you also remind me of uh, Colin Creevy's younger brother and him seeing everything with wide-eyed wonder for the first time, reminding, reminding us of us first seeing everything with wide-eyed wonder. But I love that. Yeah, I think those house elves would be good fun. Um, Sarah, Sarah, what were you thinking? And I can go too, whenever. Um, I, had, I had a couple uh, wintry activities. One um, sort of related to West. Um, I was thinking more like what would I do with magic to amplify winter here? And I think I would just um, like basically construct the perfect snow or perfect skiing conditions. Um, there's I, I have something I really want to be doing right now. And there isn't a lot of snow in the mountains at the moment. Um, but to be able to, I don't know, kind of like, have a time turner to go skiing um whenever the powder is perfect is something that seems nice um the other thing i really like about christmas um or christmas time is i love the um holiday lights I like going to see neighborhoods that are all decorated with crazy lights and seattle is um I don't know if they're known for it, but the holiday spirit is like alive and well here. And um, it's so much more than in DC. Like there's just houses and entire blocks, neighborhoods that are like the electric bill just must be sky high right now. Um, and I think if, if some kind of like enchanted holiday light neighborhood could be you know amplified with magic that'd be cool i'm thinking like um light displays that can also um like be in motion like dance um twinkle light strands that could um move into different shapes um that could um i don't know tell a scene or a story um and then yeah I don't know, that's not super creative, but there's already a lot of magic at Christmas, so. Oh, yeah. True enough, true enough. And so I guess I, I, I threw out some ideas, like I've been seeing a lot of stage performances lately, and I got to see a Christmas carol at the wonderful uh, theater in Old Town, San Diego this Friday. And so I was thinking maybe a production with some real ghosts. Um, mm. That'd be pretty cool. That'd be pretty cool and some real magical effects though this the stage is always magical and that it draws my attention away from that which i guess i might usually see and towards that which i might not usually see and thus is very interesting but i also i'd also like to anywhere where the weasley twins are and possibly molly weasley baking stuff that's where i want to go so, and if I were to make it even more ideal, I'd want to hang out with the Weasleys at a party they would throw at their joke shop after they found it. Because I think that would just be so fun. And one thing I would hope would be there would be food that would transform you into the, the holiday character that your attitude was like. And I know I do a lot of transformation like this, but like you turn into a Grinch or a Scrooge if you don't have the right spirit or you don't, you know, bring anything to the party. Uh, you know, you can turn into, um, I, I, I don't know, who else could you turn into? Um, other holiday figures. You can turn into Snoopy, I guess, if you're especially elf. creative. You can turn into Buddy the Elf. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, but that, so that was my idea. Uh, or I, I would like to go to a, a, a Weasley, a friend George Weasley party. Ron can come too, I guess. Not a main feature. And, um, I, uh, I'd also like to see a stage performance with, uh, with real ghosts. 
Wait, now why? I I don't know. I'm not sure about all this hating on Ron Weasley. Um, he's <laughs> he's pretty tall for his age. Uh, he's he's very loyal. I mean, let's go. Come on. He is loyal, and that does come out again. Is he? Is yeah. he? Is well, he loyal? Very, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Well, we have a good opening question for next time. And so, because I didn't <laughs> get through the reading on this, and, you know, I got, it's interesting to see you really wanted to hold into the fire. You can tell it's that time of the semester, Sarah, at the end of it, when our patience gets thin, that you're just like, is there <laughs> yeah. a redeeming aspect of him? I don't know. I do not know. And so... Um, I've just been with, with uh, my, yeah, my basketball team and uh that's sort of how i'm feeling at the end of a monday is really is there a redemption and it is late know. on a monday for some teachers that's true uh as we're getting towards yeah. the uh teacher witching hour which is 10 um and uh 15 <laughs> so so yeah we were thinking 15 16 17 for next time um uh bow baton bow and durmstrung and so you got that sort of french and german uh uh, flair and that sort of feminine and masculine. I can't wait to talk about that quite a bit. 16, the Goblet of Fire, and 17, the Four Champions. And um, maybe we could do 18, but I, I don't know. We're getting towards finals over on in these necks of the woods. So I, well, maybe I'll be able to get through this. Let's we'll just, see. Let's just um, play it by ear over the course of the week. How about that? Cool. I really love that. Sounds good. We'll just use our wands. Okay. And yeah. our spew button. AKA our phone. We also we also have to wear our spew buttons. That's important. S P E W. Oh, right. Yeah. Yes. Right. Right. Get Sorry. it right, Wes. <laughs> also those. All right. Okay. Thanks, guys. All right. Good, good luck, and hopefully your right. students get some newts. And we'll tend to the screws. <laughs> Take Bye. it easy.